everybody uh we're glad that you were able to join us again and we thank you for making this podcast such a great success already the numbers of downloads have just been getting better and better and we thank you for coming back if you notice today there will be a different host and that'll be me with me are three of some of the greatest panelists that you could ever have for a space tweet podcast first is gene mccalka how are you doing tonight gene good evening sir we're doing okay can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, i um, currently a tech writer with a company in uh, South Plainfield, New Jersey. Uh, but I've been following the program since I was about five years old, watching two rather ghostly figures walking on the moon uh, back then. And uh, back in a, on a very rainy uh, summer evening in 1969. And uh, I guess I got bit by the bug then. And uh, have been bit ever since. I've uh, just been absolutely enthralled with the program. I uh, did some uh, work with uh, um, National Space Society in the early 90s um, and was a planetarium presenter over at, over at the County College of Morris Planetarium between 1991 and 1995. Uh, so that's sort of how my, uh, my career is sort of skirted a little bit. With that, and I, I'm just trying now to get right back into 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 space as a career. And right back into it, you have gotten with the podcast. Oh yeah. Well, welcome to uh, the panel this time, rather than being the host, and hope to enjoy that. Next is Mark Ratterman, and how are you doing tonight, Mark? Great. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, well, I'm a kind of an old-timey uh, FAA technician. I work on ground-based equipment. Uh, a lot of old stuff, occasionally things relatively new. I'm about 100 miles or so north of uh, the Mouse Ears down in central Florida, and more importantly, uh, that probably a little bit further than that from Launch Complex uh, 39. So uh, I'm close, but not close enough. Boy, I wish I was closer to where the rockets fly. I hear you when it comes to that. Well, welcome again. And also with us is Gina Hurley. How you doing tonight, Gina? I'm fine, Soria. Thank you. I am a marketing professional in the Boston suburbs and a space enthusiast my entire life. And uh, I'm very, very pleased to join your group tonight. And we are very pleased to have you with us again. And just for those of you that don't know, I'm Sawyer Rosenstein. I am the NASA man on Twitter. And I also work at the Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center, which is one of 50 Challenger Centers across the United States and around the world in memory of the STS-51L crew, which unfortunately perished back in 1986. And you can also follow my center on Twitter at LHVCC. All right, now that we know exactly who we're dealing with, let's get started with our first story. And this one, I have a feeling, has every single one of us ticked off. And that is that the Texas State Board of Education feels that Neil Armstrong is not worthy of being in their textbooks and they want to remove him because they feel that he is not a scientist. And even the official biographer of Armstrong said that the board's decision would be a slap in the face to Apollo. So what are your comments on Texas saying, get rid of Neil from the books? Well, I'm just astounded from the standpoint of an American. I mean, he is just um, a name most people recognize with uh, a great historical moment. I don't know what we're trying to teach America's youth if we're not going to recognize the first individual to step foot on the moon. And it seems um, incredulous to me as a parent of a child who's in, you know, in school that um, he would even be at a school that wouldn't recognize the acumen of an individual like Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong didn't just luck out and win the lottery and take a seat on the Saturn V that went all the way to the moon. He was a test pilot. He um, has advanced degrees and um, he's probably one of the coolest cucumbers out there. 
in terms of um, just his own personal um, nature and his incredible just uh, unspoken leadership and ability to command that mission. And that alone, I mean, that's the kind of people that I think America's youth needs to look to. And um, we should have whole chapters on Neil Armstrong. He shouldn't be removed out of the textbook. I was looking at a article dated um, September 18th, 2009 from the Houston Chronicle. The author is uh, Eric Berger, who was the, uh, their science editor there. And um, he makes a good point, and I'm going to echo this. This is the Texas Board of Education. Just picture this for a minute here. I mean, the, the astronauts were based in Texas, for God's sake, um, during Apollo. They still are today. Um, I mean, come on. Come on, guys. Um, I know what they're trying to say is, well, we don't want to burden fifth graders with trying to remember names and all this. But, And you can sort of understand it. But Neil Armstrong, the first human being to ever set foot on, on another world? Come on, guys. Give me a break. This is a pivotal figure in history, like it or not. And school kids have to know that have to know that name. I'm sorry. I mean, it's it's synonymous with Columbus and um, any other his, Magellan and any other historic explorer. I mean, you know, let, let's let, let's let's really really have a reality check on this. Oh, I agree. He's uh, he's a figure that needs to be recognized. I'm looking at Wikipedia, and it says American aviator, former astronaut, test pilot, university professor. U.S. Naval Aviator. He received the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. This this isn't a a, a puddle jumping uh, pilot that that got lucky. This is an extraordinary man that uh, that needs to be recognized, remembered, remembered, and held up as a role model. I agree. Just because his uh, degree is in aeronautical engineering doesn't mean he's not a scientist. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's. He, he is a scientist, like it, or, like it or not, and he should get the accolades of such. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I know he performed science experiments on the moon. They might have been simple and crude for the first cruise, um, only two-hour EVA out there. But, you know, they collected rocks. They had some strategy to go about that. There were some simple experiments that they had set up, some soil samples. Um, I think they put out a few instruments on the moon. I mean... I mean, they may sound like simple tasks, but I'm sure they were very complicated in nature in the exact way they needed to be done in order for them to work. And, you know, again, I mean, does a scientist mean you have a PhD? It doesn't mean that you practice science. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's an incredulous stand to take on someone who probably became synonymous for Texas for a while. I mean, right. I mean, NASA's in the backyard, It's you know, in Houston and and uh, you're going to exclude one of your best sons of Texas in a way, even though he was adopted to Texas. It doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, he did honestly perfect the science of getting to the moon and walking on it. So there is a form of science. Yeah, true. But um, I, again, um, I, I can sort of, in a way, I can sort of sympathize with, you know, as, as uh, Eric Berger says in the article, you can sort of sympathize with the workload that kids have got. But... Come on, guys. Neil Armstrong. It's like removing George Washington from a from a from a uh, from a textbook or Magellan or, or or any great explorer, you know, or any great explorer. I mean, come on. Chances are there'll be some pressure that'll uh, reverse that decision, and I bet it's not just from the general public. There's going to be NASA and other organizations that are going to question it. So hopefully, it'll be uh, corrected. Yeah, I. I agree. I agree with you there, Mark. I mean, there, there's just no way NASA alone is going to just, you know, NASA is not going to let that stand. But uh, do you think they would take a stand on that? I mean, as a government agency, do you think that they're going to step in with a Texas or a state board of education? It's not even on the federal level where the NASA administrator could call the secretary of, en of education. It's like they're a little left out of um, that sort of influence on a state decision. Yeah, I don't think NASA's got any influence whatsoever on this, but I think unofficially there might be some things that, you know, some folks could say, especially like in the Clear Lake area, uh, to say, hey, you know, you, you guys do what you want, but we're going we're gonna to keep Neil in the books. Thank you. Definitely. I can't wait to see the parents' reactions at the board meeting when they <laughs> argue the fact that Neil Armstrong is an astronaut who is a scientist and should be kept in their textbooks. 
Amen to that. And I'd say on this point, we can move on to something else, which involves the moon still, except this time it's not about astronauts on it. It's about water on it. NASA has just announced that they have discovered water on the surface of the moon with not just one, not two, but three different spacecraft. One of them was the Chandrayaan, I hope I said that right, <laughs> was that spacecraft with its moon mineralogy mapper, or M-cubed, along with some data from Cassini and NASA's epoxy spacecraft, which took a look at one of the comets. They discovered that just below the surface, there was a little bit of water, which was accessible, not a lot. But what do we think about this? Well, if they've found water, I mean, the implications there are are phenomenal for your fuel source. Uh, if you're looking at using the moon to, to go elsewhere in the solar system, I think you just found the gas station. Um, this, if, you're, if you're trying to use hydrogen fuel to get somewhere, you found it. Um, I, I mean, it, it has, has some pretty serious implications for, uh, for exploration down the line um, for, for many years, if indeed this is, this is the case. I mean the the uh, I, I know the Indian satellite Sawyer that you kind of mentioned, uh, which I guess just died not too long ago, was also scanning for water, and I think also um, LRO is also going to be doing the same thing, and obviously LCROSS is going to be impacting and doing doing the same thing. I'm wondering if they are going to realign um, LCROSS's impact zone as a result of the study. I'm just going to add something really quickly here. With the amount of water that they found, it's water and hydroxyl, which is a part of water in a way. And the amount that they found so far, they believe there is as much as 1,000 water molecule parts per million, which is about, if you were to harvest a ton of the top layer of the moon's surface, you'd get about 32 ounces of water. So do you think it's on top, or do you think maybe if they just L-cross, they'll find some down lower? Well, that's the whole reason for doing L-Cross, to find out if there is anything below the surface, and um, only only time will tell. But if it's if it's that fairly close to the surface, there's got to be some more underneath there. And we've had uh, uh, comet impacts all over the place, and I'm sure at some point in the moon's history, a comet impact happened there, and that's probably where the water initially came from. Now, the L-cross is due to hit the lunar south pole, correct? Because they believe that there's water in the poles, and we know that that's now the coldest part of the solar system is, go figure, our own moon at the poles. Um, yeah. yeah, I believe that's that's correct. But I think they've, uh, I'm wondering too now if they've, with, you know, the discovery of this whole whole thing, um, if that's going to cause them to change where the impact is actually going to be, mm-hmm. are they going to be looking at, are they going to be looking at the, uh, uh, the scans and going, hey, maybe if we move just a couple hundred miles this way, we might have a better, higher probability of finding water as, as a result of these scans. So I, I don't know. Um, had, had anybody heard anything about that, that if, about uh, the possibility? I've not heard about it, but another thing with that is that at one point Elcross had a little fuel issue, I believe. So I don't know how much they can recorrect it. Yeah, I, I heard a little bit about that. I mean, we were we were, I, I, but that was that was one of the prime discussions out in the lobby just before the uh, the the tweet up because that the the announcement sort of held us up a little bit. Um, we had the, the announcement was being held in the same um, auditorium as uh, we were going to be in. And uh, we were just sort of buzzing around trying to find out more information on that. And most of it was going on, on behind closed the, – the door that we were trying to get into, and we couldn't, do it, we couldn't hear about it. But um, I'm looking at an article right now um, from uh, – I guess it's uh, Voice American News about the, about the findings. And indeed, Sawyer, they go ahead and, and mention the uh, – uh, I believe the one of the members of the team, Jack Mustard uh, from Brown University, is saying it's also unclear whether they're seeing water, a molecule, two atoms, or hydrogen, and one one of oxygen or or a hyd- hydroxyl, a chemical with only one hydrogen atom. So, you know, they're still they're still trying to figure out if it is water or if it's not water. But still, the presence of hydrogen alone says you may have your gas station there, and I think that might have some implications for. Uh, 
um, for for the future. Yeah, I think it'll be a while though before we figure out a way to tank up efficiently. It says if you had a two-liter bottle of um, lunar soil, you'd probably have about a teaspoon of water <laughs> out of that two-liter bottle. So, um, yeah, but you know, again, um, uh, it still says that the place is a little wetter than we kind of thought, and um, if water is located in one area, it might be located in another. So. We'll see what, what happens later on this month with, uh, with the L-Cross impact. It should be very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Although Same. I don't think we'll be able to see it from the East Coast at all. No, unfortunately, I don't think so. Uh, but uh, that's, that's all well and good. We will go ahead and, uh, and take a look at, uh, at what uh, the, the, uh, the cameras see, and we'll take a look and see what, uh, what's, what's found on under the surface, because I think that's that's the primary thing to find out what is actually going on, and if indeed we find out that there's water that more water than we actually thought, I think this is going to really really blow the uh, the whole uh, idea of exploration you know wide open. Mark, do you have any comments by the way? No, I haven't uh, haven't seen anything to to hint at uh, change in the impact point. I'm sure they'd like to to look at all the new possibilities that science has given them some information on, but uh, I haven't seen anything on that, so I think they're probably going to go with go as planned, and uh, the last things I've seen, they, they're ready to go. Alright, and ready to go indeed they are. And are we ready to move on to the next one as well? Alright, so while we're continuing along the path of water on other planets, we'll move on over to another neighbor of ours, and that would be Mars. It was just discovered, actually, using the MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it found a crater that was not there at one point, and there are two pictures. There's one showing on October 18th, 2008, of a crater that actually has a bunch of what looks like ice in it. And then there's another one on January 14th of 2009, where most of it has disappeared. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the ice was exposed at five different Martian sites, and it ranges in depth from about half a meter, which is a foot and a half, to about two and a half meters, or eight feet. And that's near the equator as well. Big find? I think so. What do you guys think? You know, the sad part about it is if, if the Viking landers were able to dig just a little deeper, could you imagine what the headlines would have been back in 1976? I mean, that would have just really, really changed everything. I think, uh, you know, we probably would have gotten a little bit more excited about Mars and, uh, and, and, exp and exploring Mars. Especially if we found if we really found found uh, permafrost underneath there at that point in time. Exactly, I think it would have completely changed everybody's view on Mars and the exploration of it. I have a feeling there probably would have been a lot more exploring and a whole different approach to it. Because looking it up here, the Viking Lander Two missed it by ten centimeters, or about four inches. That was it, and I think that would have made a huge difference in oh. how we look at the planet. No doubt, and I think people would, may have gotten a little bit more excited about uh, about continued exploration on uh, on the Red Planet. I mean, they're starting to get excited about it now, but uh, I think we would have saved a whole lot of time and uh, and a whole lot of uh, you know horsing around trying to figure out well what are we going to do here and there and the other this that and the other thing. I mean, the last time we actually you know what was it between uh, flights? I think it was. Viking landed in 76, I think, and when did Sojourner land? I think it was 1995, correct? I think you're right. Yeah, that, that's too long of a span of time, guys. So I think we might have, uh, just finding water would have just electrified things. And one of, the, one of the primary missions of Viking was to try to see if we can actually find life there, and unfortunately the... Um, the Viking results were sort of ambiguous at best, if I recall. Uh, they were giving sort of false positives, but um, it's still – I think the Viking results are still being debated to this day. So I do believe you're right, and there were many false data there, and it was so annoying to think that there's the possibility of life. It wasn't there. Couldn't find water, but it was there. One of them, you don't know if it was there or not. The other, we now know, had it dug a couple of centimeters deeper. It was right there. Yeah, that, that's the most annoying part. And I think it also, too, tells you that 
you know, robots, although they're, they're great, I think we should, should should indeed send them before we go, um, they have their limitations. And this is, this is a prime example. Uh, I'm sure if there was a human on site, he probably would have said, hey, you know, you want to dig a little deeper and see what we find out? And said, yeah, all right, sure, why not? And sure, lo and behold, I think we would have had our answer. And that goes back to the whole debate about humans and robots, but that's something completely different. That, yeah, exactly. I'm not going to go down that We're not even right getting now. there. We'll be here all night. By the way, what do you guys think about this discovery, either Gino or Mark? Um, I'm not surprised by it. I think I'm absolutely. I mean, all of these planets are made from the same elements, if you will. So whether it's a trace amount or as vast as the Pacific Ocean, it's no surprise, really, that there isn't some hydrogen and oxygen molecules interlock somewhere on other bodies of uh, going around our sun and you know certainly Mars I mean we've suspected for a long time there's been ice or water and you know trace or not I, I, I think it just lends to the argument as to why we need to get there or why we need to go back to the moon like Jean said you know had we been able to get out there with our own shovel we probably would have found this a long time ago and have made it work for our for humanity already a lot of times gone by and that's unfortunate yeah and just think your ticket home is there too i mean if you are able to go ahead and you know uh melt that water ice there your your fuel there is is uh you know part of your ticket home is there too so yeah these have got to be exciting times for the scientists with the, the missions that are out there and even looking at uh information from from past uh you know from past robotic explorers that have gone out where I think I heard the comment, uh, and this is back on the moon, but, but they made the statement that they found some trace amounts of moisture in the rock samples that were brought back by Apollo. But they thought it was just contamination. It was things that, that uh, you know, they said it's hard to get water off of anything. You send a, a spacecraft up and there's, there's moisture, or there's, there's molecules sticking to it. It's a very sticky substance. And, uh, but it's got to be exciting to... And look at results from from past missions and current stuff, and find things that are that are there. That's right, Mark. I remember hearing that comment during the week, and um, I, I think somebody made the uh, the observation that yeah, I guess it's it's just uh, our own prejudice. I guess you know, because our our world is so wet, we just figured, well, heck, it's it's uh, just a contamination issue, and. Uh, you know, that's that. But shoot, the the answer was right under our nose. We just didn't know it. Any more comments or shall we move along? I think we'll rock and roll. Alrighty then. Moving on, our next topic is that still standing inside that vehicle assembly building is the 327 foot tall Ares 1X test flight rocket. They have now finally set a date for them to try and launch it from pad 39B. And that is now for October 27th. They're hoping to roll it out to the pad on October 19th, get a couple more days of prep work in there, and launch it and see whether America's space program has a new beginning or a new explosion. So <laughs> what are your opinions on this? Oh, man, let's light this candle. Um, I mean, even um, uh, uh, Norm Augustine, uh, when, he pres when he was talking in front of, I believe it was the uh, House... Uh, uh, of representatives with their, uh, I think it was the House Science and Technology Committee. Um, he he basically was asked, should we actually really launch this thing given the fact that we don't even know if this is actually going to be the vehicle that we're going to use? And Augustine was like, yeah, let, you know, definitely we should launch the thing because we will learn, you know, we'll learn from, we'll learn so much from, from, uh, from just, just actually firing it. And I, I'm, Personally, hoping that the uh, that, that the stack works. Uh, I don't see a reason why it shouldn't. I know I'm probably going to get all kinds of hate mail about that one because uh, there are some some fanboys out there saying that uh, this thing just isn't going to fly. But I think uh, um, I think we're going to be proven. I think we're going to prove a lot of people wrong. I think this thing is actually going to fly, whether whether or not it's the actual booster that we're we're going to use for Orion. I don't know. It's all going to be really up to um, what the uh, the course the white the, the course that the White House wants to take. But uh, I still say that we should light it and learn from it, and let's see what happens. Who knows? Maybe maybe it will 
uh, go ahead and say, you know, cure all kinds of things with it, with its detractors and say, hey, this thing actually works. Maybe we should use it. So we'll, we'll see. That brings up a whole other point. And, Mark, I want your opinion on this, too. Do you think that the Ares 1X rocket is going to go up in all of its glory and continue America's space conquest? Or do you think it's going to go up and straight back down in a giant ball of taxpayers' money? <laughs> oh, no, it'll fly. It'll fly. It'll fly as is, and with uh, the results that they're getting from the Demonstration 1 motor that they uh, tested out in Utah, I think that uh, there's a possibility NASA could make some changes. They could do some modifications to, to deal with the concerns they have over vibrations and the resonant frequency of the stack and, you know, whether it's going to be too high a vibration that will affect equipment that would be dangerous for crew and, uh, you know, possibility. Maybe they'll make some changes before they do the 1X launch, but uh, I, I'm, sure it'll, I'm sure it'll launch and I think modified or unmodified, I think it has a real good chance of success. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm with Mark here. I mean, the, even the Saturn had its uh, growing pains during, uh, during the Apollo days, and uh, there was a. Mark was bringing up the, uh, the possibility of a vibration, and the Saturn also suffered from some wicked pogo during ascent, and they looked at the data, fixed it, and uh, they went to fly again. So I have a feeling that no matter what happens with this, um, they'll go ahead, fix it, and try it again. But uh, I don't see any reason why the vehicle should not fly. And uh, I think it's going to go ahead, and I have every confidence that it's going to just go ahead and really, really shut up its detractors big time. And I agree. Just because there are people saying that it didn't get enough money as it should have, it got enough money to build it, it got enough money for the people to try it, and it has enough money to do the tests on it. So it's already done. They've already done all of the research and all of the work on it, so why would it not fly? And that's my opinion is that it is going to go. And if nothing else, even if there is any issues with it, they have until between 2015 or 2016 about that to test out the real Ares 1 and get all the kinks out like you were saying they did with the old Saturn Vs. Yeah, I mean, not only that. I mean, the technology they're using is technology we've been flying with for, what, 30 years? I mean, it, it's a modified solid rocket booster. Uh, so I, we've been using, and we've been using that type of type technology since since the shuttle era started. So the first stage, I, I just don't see a, a problem with. And ditto with the second stage. I mean, it's still flying engines that are, you know, sort of, if, if my memory serves, and somebody out there is going to correct me on this, but I think the engines that they're using for the second stage, aren't they also old Apollo derivative engines, I think? I'm not sure. What I'm looking at here is an article from Spaceflight Now. It says that uh, it's a stock four-segment solid rocket booster from the shuttle program, a simulated fifth segment of the first stage, a dummy second stage, and a mock Orion capsule where the crew would be seated for liftoff during a real launch. Okay, so they're not use, they're not even using stage two on this one. This is, that's interesting. So um, yeah, again, I don't see see any reason now why this thing should not work. I mean, it it will fly, and I think it's gonna again. I think its detractors are gonna go well. All right, you know, they're gonna be like, uh, um, I, I don't know. They they're just not going to be happy. <laughs> And honestly, at $350 million, it better. Oh, it will. Believe me. It, it, I, I have every confidence that, that Ares 1X will, will fly and fly well. Something else to uh, keep in mind, and you were talking about the, uh, the history of the SRBs that the shuttle is, has launched with. Uh, according to a, a Twitter post by ATK Rocket News, 1,328 shuttle booster segments have been cast at ATK over the life of the space shuttle program. 1,328 is a whole lot of experience, and of course that doesn't take into account all the complexities of a, of a launch vehicle that they have with the complete 1X stack, but uh, it, it sure gives them some, uh, some credit, you know, in my book. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, Mark, uh, and uh, I, again, I just completely and totally agree, agree with you on that one, because uh, they've had experience building these things. They know what, what they have to do to make this thing work. 
I, I don't see uh, any difficulties really getting uh, Ares uh, X1 in the air at all. Now, before we move on to discussion about the 127 tweet-up, I thought we should play an audio clip from the 125 tweet-up of our very own Gene McCulka doing an interview. That interview was with NASA TV, and here it is as it was aired on that date. Where are you from? Uh, Mine Hill, New Jersey. Ah, very good. Step over here a little bit. Okay, sure. And uh, tell us, uh, did you come down just for this? Yes, sir. Yeah, we're going to turn it this way. Okay. There you go. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and your name? Uh, Gene McCulka. Gene, uh, is this the first time uh, you've ever been to an event like this? An event like this, yes. Um, I've been to a couple of uh, you know National Space Society conferences here you know, throughout the years, but this is this is something special here today. Tell us about Twitter and your involvement. Oh boy. Um, well, I started using it as uh, something to keep track of stuff at work initially, and. Um, just, you know, during a spare time, just started tweeting about uh, STS-119, and one thing led to another, and here we are, so. This is a great opportunity to uh, get to know the crew a little bit better. Oh, indeed. Um, I have a couple of interesting questions for uh, Mr. Massimino. I was just going to ask you that. What, yeah. what, what are you, you going to try to pry out of him? Well, actually, the, the stuff that I found that was more fascinating was the uh, information he was relaying uh, when he came back. Uh, I found you know him just getting adjusted to uh, life back here, and I just want to want to ask him a little bit about that. And uh, he was up, I guess, what was it, eleven days? Is that right, John? Eleven day mission, yes. Eleven day mission, and uh, uh, you know some of the astronauts are up there six months, and right, it's, right. it's a lot tougher. It's a heck of a lot tougher. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure he'll have some uh, some keen uh, insights to share with you. Indeed. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate Thank you for it. Inviting. And he's from Jersey, everybody. From uh, Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot. All right, so, Gene, that was you at the 125 tweet-up. And, yes, you're from Joyzy. Yeah, and the uh, last time I checked, so, so, I heard, so were you. <laughs> yes, indeed, but uh, that uh, PAO guy was kind of funny with that. And I did say I like your answer, though, and not bad for trying to squeeze something in, waiting for the guys to get in. Yeah, yeah, that was actually – they had a line of folks in uh, that were just trying to – uh, they want to do some some pre uh, uh, pre uh, event interviews and uh, Beth Beck in her in her heart of hearts you said you know you want to go in on there and I'm like yeah, all right fine so I she kind of just pushed me over there and I just you know went in there I was sort of like the last person online for for that and again this was for the 125 event and all I really wanted to do was just basically you know answer the gentleman's questions as, as best I could and. Uh, I really wanted to find out what life was like post um, post uh, trip into space for uh, Mike Massimino, because he did put in some very very interesting, um, very very interesting uh, posts on Twitter uh, post flight as far as him getting adjusted and 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 trying to get back to to life you know before the flight. And uh, you know there was an interesting little uh, little tidbit that he that he posted about a a shopping trip that he and his wife went on. And uh, as they were unpacking groceries, he kind of took a can out and and just sort of like left it in midair. And of course, here on in you know one G, the can's going to drop. Uh, I guess he expected it to float off, and of course, it just fell down on the ground and he wasn't was not really expecting that no and i love um, how his wife re, what he put in the tweet is how uh it said getting readjusted to gravity let go of a small bag of groceries and must have expected it to float luckily no damage so i guess the can survived then huh yes so is, i and i was i was just wondering how many of those little you know little events had, had occurred as he was trying to get uh, get used to to life back here um, and, and that, that was really my primary thing. Uh, I, I later found out that somebody else was going to ask the same question. So I, I, I sort of let them have that question and, um, went back into uh, my little bag of questions that I had and, and asked something else during the 125 event. And so now we switch to what happened this month in September. And just recently, I believe on Friday, the 25th, there was a tweet up for the next mission, STS-127, which holds a personal thing to me as uh, that mission aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavor actually carried a patch from my work on board the shuttle itself. So that holds something near and dear to me as well. But 
Jean, you were there once again in D.C. at the envy of many of us, correct? <laughs> yeah, the, the event actually took place on the 24th, uh, which everybody was razzing about, about that with me because that was my birthday. And uh, it, it was a very, very interesting event. We, we sort of got preempted a little bit by the announcement of uh, you know, finding water on the moon. And uh, as they were in, over in the, uh, the James Webb Auditorium at NASA headquarters, it was the same auditorium that we were going to use for our event. So we were sort of preempted a little bit, but that gave us some time to mull around and in the, uh, uh, the atrium there and, and get to know some of the other folks that were hanging out and get to ask questions and wonder what the, the, the press conference was going on, how that was going, and, and so on. They do have a... Have a uh, uh, I guess a, a, a huge flat panel television screen, and they're showing NASA television. But it was really, really difficult to go ahead and hear what they were saying above the din there. So um, unfortunately, we didn't get this. I didn't get to, to read. I had to read about that before uh, uh, before I, I left DC, rather than hearing, <laughs> rather than than actually sitting in the auditorium for that. But um, the question I had for for both you guys was. What did it look like from your side of the television screen? Because I've got some commentary on what it was like on my side of the television screen. Well, for this one, Gene, I saw just a small part of it uh, towards the end, and I'd never, uh, never caught one of these events on, uh, you know, recorded or live. And I was just really impressed with the astronauts. I thought that, uh, you know, they were they were very professional and yet they were very personable, and uh, what great ambassadors for for NASA with with such a varied group of people as you would as I'm sure you had there. Yeah, I didn't really get to see much of it at all, but from what I did see, some of it they improved a little bit, like the graphics and the on the screen that they tried to make a little nicer. And it was almost like since they've done it before, it was a little more uh, fancy and a little less formal. It seemed from watching it, what I did, it looked a little more. You know, it was still following the format, but a little more laid back, especially looking at the pictures from afterwards, which I believe, Gene, you'll be able to fill us in on the whole story of the behind the scenes. Yeah, I can I can go ahead and tell you that it was a little laid, more laid back than, than the STS-125 event. The one for 125 seemed to almost have a rock concert uh, quality about it. Uh, this one was a little bit more low-key. Uh, I think there were a little less... Um, in the audience for this one, unfortunately. Uh, but I think it also had to do a lot with the subject matter. Because I asked two of the other folks that I was sort of hanging around with um, during the event. Uh, Glenn, uh, one gentleman, Glenn, who's known as, um, you know, I believe his uh, Twitter ID is, uh, is ZippyG2. And um, the other one is... Um, Terrily 007. Um, so I was hanging out with those th those two folks who were also really really you know gracious, and uh, we kind of discussed that because they were both at the same they were both at the 125 event, and I just said this one just seemed a little different to me. This one seemed a little bit lo low key, and I asked them why, and they felt that well you know we did have we were sort of preempted a little bit so. Um, we got into the auditorium a little later than than we normally would have wanted to get into, but um, we both, all three of us, sort of agreed that I think it had much to do with the nature of the mission. Um, STS-125 was about rescuing a what what's become a social, I mean, a social, a, a cultural icon, and that was the Hubble Space Telescope. So this crew set out to go ahead and repair Hubble, um, and it was also going to be the last time that Hubble was going to be visited by human beings, and uh, so that was that was really big news. This one, STS-127, was a ISS mission, um, but it had so many sophisticated parts to it. There was some very sophisticated robotics going on. First off, I should say that the purpose of STS-127 was to go ahead and finish off the Kibo module 
which is the Japanese laboratory on the ISS. And uh, in order to do that, they had to affix a, uh, a porch. And this porch had to be passed from the shuttle robotic arm over to the station robotic arm over to the Kibo re robotic arm and then finally put in place. And that's something, boys and girls, you can't simulate down here on the ground um, in, with with uh, with the neutral buoyancy facility back in Houston because the, the space station has grown so big it's sort of outgrown that particular facility. So you have to do it virtually by computer. So the first time you're actually trying to practice this maneuver is actually the first time you're really doing it. So uh, I, I hats off to Julie Payette who had to go ahead and, and do most of these robotics. And uh, uh, I believe also Doug Hurley, the uh, the uh, pilot on the mission, also had had something to do with with the robotic operation. So both of them were were really, had to be really really on because you're 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 moving the, this huge pallet from the shuttle over to the station, and you know you have to make sure you're not hitting anything on the station while you're passing the this thing along. And it's uh, it was it was quite quite a sophisticated job. But I don't think it got a lot of the press that I think it really, really deserved. And uh, that, that to me was unfortunate. But um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the crew was extremely gracious. This was a really good bun bunch of folks. Unfortunately, uh, I believe Julie Payette had to leave early. She had a, another uh, previous engagement, so she had to take off. But the rest of the crew was there. And... Um, uh, they were very, very gracious with uh, uh, asking all sorts of questions. They were more than happy to answer questions from us, both on camera and off. Uh, they were just a really, really, you know, good bunch of bunch of folks. And I, I have to say thank you to uh, to Mark Polanski and uh, uh, Doug Hurley for 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 really being some uh, a really good group of folks and putting up with me because I was asking them all sorts of questions after the event. But uh, again, the, the crew was just absolutely magnificent. So hats off to NASA for putting on one heck of an event again. I am hoping that a 128 event is planned and uh, they they do plan it. We'll, we'll make every effort to be there, but uh, they put on one heck of a show. They really did. And uh, I'm, I was actually very, very impressed with the uh, with the job that uh, NASA PAO did, very nice. And you actually stole one of my questions. I was about to ask who was able to uh, stay after because I know during 125, two or three of them had a plane to catch, and I was actually about to ask who was able to stay and who wasn't. And apparently, Julie wasn't. Yeah, un unfortunately too, because I, I wanted to send compliments to it from a, a mutual acquaintance, but. Uh, uh, yeah, she had to take off, um, but the rest of the crew stayed, and I mean, we closed the place literally. They were, they were chasing us out. Even the the uh, uh, Mark Curie, who was the uh, PAO for the event, was also extremely gracious because I was asking him all sorts of questions, and he was more than happy to answer them. And I mean, by the time we left, I think it was like what six o'clock. And the only thing I'm I'm thinking of is you know let, let's get these people out of here so they can go to dinner, but uh, uh, the the whole lot the whole crew over there were, were were just really really fantastic. They've really rolled out the red carpet for us again, and I'm hoping that NASA's able to go ahead and leverage this auditorium load of uh, of space folks and. Uh, can really, you know, really use them to the, use us to their benefit, and I don't mind, you know, being part of that army. Uh, that will that that's more than than willing to help out. I mean, I think if if they need assistance getting the message out about spaceflight, then uh, they need uh, some some soldiers. I, I want to get in on that. Very cool. And one more quick thing I want to throw in here before we wrap it up. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a whole conversation going on the other day on Twitter between a bunch of us um, talking about if there were tweet-ups not just for the STS-127 missions, but with actual scientists and after other discoveries and missions. What do you guys think about having more than just a shuttle tweet-up? That'd be a good idea. Um, I don't know if it would generate the amount of interest 
that uh, um, a shuttle flight would would, uh, but um, I, I'd go, uh, especially if it was about a uh, um, a good topic that you know warranted some really really serious discussion. I'd go. I'd go to it. Oh, um, I, Sawyer, can I just add one thing? Yeah, go ahead. There was one individual that sort of stole my thunder, and I want to give her give a give her a tip of the hat here. Her Twitter name is Rock Teacher Jan. She was the one who actually asked um, a question during the the event that we actually kicked around during our first episode here. She asked the uh, the question, "Would you go on a one way trip to Mars?" to the uh, to the panel of astronauts and the answer was was rather intriguing if anybody saw it and people said yes they would and wanted to know what astronauts who actually know what they're doing uh, how you would respond to that would you take a one-way trip to Mars I think <laughs> well, I, I think that that's a case-by-case case question. I mean, that, that's an interesting concept to think about it. And all of we are astronauts because we, we want to and enjoy training for and operating in space. But there is certainly a human aspect to it, and uh, we, we all have families. And to take a one-way trip to Mars um, with our families would be one thing, but take a one-way trip to Mars without our families is an entirely different. So I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think you'd have to ask, that'd be a tough decision for each individual person to make, and, and uh, you'd have to make it in conjunction with all the people that you care about as you do that. I think it's kind of a premature question. It's one of the things, it's, it's kind of like you're asking me, um, hey, would I take the family and would I go ahead and move them uh, to another location? Or another country or something like that for the long term? And the answer is, given the right circumstances, yes. So you ask me, would I move to Mars? Given the right circumstances, yes. The right circumstances are nowhere near available and ready for us right now. I'm certainly not going to go ahead and live in a camper, you know, on Mars where I can't do much of anything with, uh, by myself and, and some crewmates and, uh, and, and know that I'm never going to come back. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to get to a place where if we're going to colonize other planets, we're going to be there for a long term, and then maybe you would entertain that. But I think we're very, very far away from that. So, so that's why I just say I think it's a little bit. I, I thought it was rather interesting. So first off, hats off to good old uh, rock, uh, rock teacher Jen there for, uh, for, for asking that question and remembering to ask it because I flat out forgot it. Um, but the, the answer to that question was very, very interesting. They said, well, you know, if it would have to depend if the time was right and if we could – if the families were coming along. And uh, it would have to be what be depending on their decision as well. So it was a very interesting, interesting reply to that, that question. And it seems like to me they gave it a heck of a lot of thought uh, before actually replying. I believe um, both Mark Polanski, who – by the way, lives around here. He's he's also a Jersey. He's also from Jersey, there, Sawyer. Yes, he is. I actually uh, have he, his autograph, courtesy of uh, a relative whose name I will not disclose, who was able to get me both a mission patch and an autographed uh, picture. Yeah, he um, he's um, he's from here. You know, he's from here. He grew up um, in Patterson, and I believe later in on moved to Edison. He also doesn't have any problems, I understand, making appearances in, in the local schools either. So, um, uh, if I'm sure, uh, you know, once once situations warrant, uh, he'll he'll be doing that again. But um, I just thought I'd throw that out there. And <laughs> he's that he's also from from uh, from from our little from our little state that gets absolutely no respect. But that's okay. <laughs> Well, how about we flip it down to Florida for a second and see if, Mark, you have any last comments? No, I'm looking forward to, uh, I think they mentioned a, a, a tweet up possibly at uh, Kennedy later in the year. And uh, I'm going to be watching for information on that, see if I can uh, get there. Mark, they did mention that toward the end, and um, I'm hoping that uh, 
that the gods smile and um, my vacation schedule holds up at work and I'm able to go ahead and get down there and fly down there for that because I think that is going to that would be a, a neat event to go to. That or the day they go to New York, I'll be there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so if there are any last comments on anything tonight, I believe that wraps it up. Oh, that's about it. All right, well, uh, Gene, thank you for handing over the reins um, and allowing me to do the hosting position for once. And anytime you want it back, I will happily let you have it. Why, thank you, sir. And again, thanks for all your commentary. And Mark, once again, thank you for all of your input. It's always appreciated. Thanks. Thank you, Sawyer. Good to be here. Gina, as well, thank you very much for all your help. That was appreciated, and uh, love the advice you're putting in. Hey, I just want to get back to the moon and Mars, and the sooner we can get there, the better for all of us. Agreed completely. Glad everyone was able to attend, and I'm glad all of you were able to download and listen to the podcast. Again, any questions, comments, especially if you were at the Tweet Up or you watched it on NASA TV, please send us an email with any questions or comments that you have, too. Space Tweet Podcast at gmail.com. That is S P A C E T W E E P podcast at gmail.com. Again, it doesn't have to be a text. It can also be spoken. It can be an audio recording of you as an MP3 about a minute or two long, and we'd love to play it on here. Got another way you can get in touch with us. There's a, uh, a feature on a website that I found where you can leave a voicemail message. It's not a a manned site or monitored site, but it's a simple phone number with an extension. And that number where you can leave us a message that we can grab as an MP3 file is phone number 646-402-5665, extension 06532. And I'll run that one more time. Voicemail number is 646-402-5665, extension 06532. And leave us a message. Give us your thoughts about what we've talked about, maybe some ideas on things you'd like to have us bring up on a future show. We'd really appreciate your feedback. So please send us any questions, comments. Once again, we thank you for downloading this. We hope to see you again next week. Same with everybody on the panel. From all of us here, good night. Or good day. Or good afternoon. Or wherever it may be. 